The cream rises to the top. If you build it, they will come. Content is king, and so on. We've heard all the cliches, but the problem is they are totally wrong. Even the best idea, product or project will fall flat if it isn't communicated effectively. On the Figures or Speech podcasts, hosts Tammy Palazzo and Tim Wickstrom talk to a wide range of amazingly successful executives, business owners, and leaders about how learning to communicate changed their lives and their fortunes. Every episode gives us stories we can emulate and lessons we can follow. Welcome to Figures of Speech. We are your hosts, Tammy Palazzo and Tim Wickstrom. Today, we're speaking with Julian Treasure, a sound and communication expert. Julian is the author of the books, How to Be Heard and Sound Business. He's given five TED Talks on sound and communication that have been watched more than 40 million times. In addition, Julian is the founder of The Sound Agency, a firm that advises worldwide businesses on how to design sound in their physical spaces and communication. He's also forming the Communication Academy, an education company that teaches you to articulate your ideas with clarity, inspire others, and engage with those around you so that you can make a difference and achieve your life goals. Julian is also a new winner of a Voice Arts Award for Best Audiobook Narration for his book, How to Be Heard. We're so grateful to have Julian on the show today. Thanks so much for joining us. All right, so thank you so much for joining us today, Julian. We are so excited to have you on the show. There's so many things we wanna be able to talk about with you. We obviously have a lot of synergy in terms of the topics that we focus on, and you in your book talk about this idea that it's not just what you say, it's it's how you say it, or you, you have a different way of putting it. That's really our language, but it's what you say and it's how you say it is the way you talk about it, and we believe that so deeply. So we're really excited to have someone who is truly of the same mind that we are, that the way we communicate the way we use our voices, the way sound impacts how our message is being delivered is so critically important. I want to start our conversation for our listeners. You've got some fantastic TED Talks that we will talk about and we will mention in the podcast later on, and we will also have links to them on our website. But you have done uh, one of your podcasts, you talk about this idea of the seven deadly sins of speaking. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about this because it feels like we are at a point of time in the world where there's not a whole lot of listening and effective communication going on. And we could all probably stand to think about what some of these deadly sins are and see how we can do them a little bit differently. Can you share a little bit more about those seven deadly sins? Sure, yes. And first of all, it's a pleasure to be here, Tammy, and nice to talk to you guys. I think politicians go off for talks, don't they? And I'm often uh, heard to observe, I think the world would be a better place if politicians went off and had listens instead of talks. (laughs) That would be ideal. Yeah, we're a bit obsessed with sending, and it's been exacerbated really by the the, the ways we've invented to communicate to each other in the last 40 years or so, email, text, instant messaging, social media, they all involve the eyes and the fingers. So communication has been very visual, first of all, and it's been very outbound. If you talk to an organization about communication, they immediately start thinking about advertising and PR and marketing. And so it's all outbound, outbound. 
So we are much fonder of sending than we are of receiving. And that's borne out again by the numbers on my TED Talks, actually. My TED Talk about speaking is the one that went really ballistic. It's in the top 10 of all time, and it's been seen, I think, by more than 30 million people on TED.com alone, which probably, according to Chris Anderson, that means about 60 million on the web overall. The talk on listening has been seen by about one-fifth as many people as that. So that's you know an informal piece of research. It's about a five-to-one ratio of speaking interest to listening interest. And the research on organizations tends to show there was a great piece of research called the Organizational Listening Project, which found that organizations focus at least 80% of their time, effort, energy, and budgets on outbound communication, speaking, in other words, and only 20% on listening. And that's probably overreported because that was self-measured by these organizations who all want to be seen as great listeners, which they aren't. Now, organizations aren't. We aren't as individuals very good at listening to each other. And, you know, I did a TED talk, sorry, a TEDx talk some time ago in the Houses of Parliament in, in London. And I started off by saying to the uh, thousand people in there, listen, and just stopped. And after a few seconds, I said, that's the wonderful sound of a thousand people consciously listening. And it's also the sound of democracy, because listening is the gateway to understanding. And only by a process of conscious listening can we coexist with people we disagree with. It's civilized disagreement, and that requires listening and understanding. We can't be civilized and disagree if we have politics in 140 characters or if we have fake news and sound bites and <laughs> diplomacy by Twitter and post-truth <laughs> politics and all this stuff, you know, that we are sadly surrounded by. And I have to say, as a Brit, I take responsibility for this because we started all this <laughs> nonsense. You started uh, with, it. You started we did. Well, we started it. ownership there. <laughs> yeah. Brexit was a disastrous campaign, which was full of politicians lying through their back teeth at each other and also mudslinging at each other. And this kind of populist politics, unfortunately, is very much about sending and not very much about listening at all. And I think it, it is a slippery slope, you know, and the media and we as consumers of media, we're locked in this deadly dance, I think, where interrupting becomes the norm. Politicians therefore respond with sound bites because they know they only get 20 or 30 seconds before they get interrupted. So they have to get the whole thing into that. So you get trivialization, you get generalization, editorializing goes on you get this lovely process in the media of cockfighting i call it where you put two people who are obviously vehemently going to disagree with each other into a studio and let them fight as if that's fun for everybody and unfortunately we're all addicted to outrage who's to blame we've got to find the guilty party and there is a reason for that it's one of two habits that i didn't talk about in that ted talk actually tammy but they're very important and you know, I, we'll go through the seven deadly sins in a moment, and several of the seven deadly sins actually arise from these two primal habits that we all have, or drives that we all have. The first is looking good. We all like to look good. Unfortunately, that creates a lot of screen, a lot of, you know, communication, outbound communication that's designed to make us look better. It's not genuine. It's not authentic. It's, it's a kind of camouflage, if you like, and particularly with politicians where unfortunately lying, dissembling, what do they call it? Misspeaking is the word for it now, which is a lovely 
piece of you know redesign of language um <laughs> That all comes from that thing of looking good. And then the other one, which is even more powerful, is being right. Mm. And the easiest way to be right is to make somebody else wrong, which is where our addiction to outrage really comes from. So if we're looking at the media and somebody's done something terrible, we can be outraged, we can be blameful. Some people do it in their private lives all the time. But you know, when we're engaged in when somebody's done something terrible, we, we're, we're standing on our on our pillar or sitting on our high horse and casting judgment to these people. And, and we're feeling good about ourselves because we're right. And that's an unfortunate part of the world, which has really infected a lot of people and certainly has affected, infected the way we, we create and we consume what's called news now. So this puts us on a, a slippery slope, a slope that starts with caricature. If you don't listen to people, it's very easy to depersonalize and caricature them. Polarization, comes out of that then you get to prejudice and then bigotry and then hatred and we all know where that leads it leads to violence it leads to terrible terrible things that have been done in the world and you can't do those terrible things if you don't depersonalize people if you listen to them you start to realize you have more in common than you have separates you and it's a different world altogether so yes i do agree i think we're in a parlous state at the moment i think we need a lot more listening and I'm hoping to do a program for the BBC this coming year in 2019, all about the importance of listening in politics. You know, once upon a time in politics, you had people doing oratory. You had people standing up in houses of parliament or, 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 or wherever and speaking eloquently and stating a case, you know, for 15, 20 minutes, even an hour sometimes. And people would listen to them. Now, not so much. Now, somebody stands up and everybody shouts at them. What do you think changed there? I mean, I know you're going to get into the to the seven deadly sins, and and they're very they're so relevant in the world that we live in right now, and certainly in politics. But what do you think changed? I mean, what what has allowed the door to open for us to so disrespectfully disregard another, and that we no longer listen to someone and and hear what they're saying? What, what's happened? Technology is part of it. Definitely, it's accelerated the process in the last forty years where we've all got into this, what I call personal broadcasting, you know, you're tweeting, I'm on a train. I mean, who cares, really? Right. It, we all have this fantasy that there's thousands of people out there hanging on our every tweet, whereas actually probably- <laughs> I like to think that. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody actually probably ever reads most of them. Um, so there's this fantasy that we are more important than, than we are, that we've got to be, you know, putting stuff out there, I suppose, that, that, that emphasizes the outbound. But also the visual, you know, if you think about it, we teach in schools reading and writing. It's a scandal if a child leaves school unable to read or write. We do not teach speaking or listening. And listening is a silent skill. It's very hard to teach. It's hard to test as well. But it, it absolutely isn't taught in any school that I know of. It's very, very rare that a school would have quiet time uh, where it's focused on the listening and, you know, teach children about the miracle of their hearing and the difference between hearing and listening, the process of listening, which is selecting things to pay attention to and then making them mean something. So it's an active process. It's a skill that we can improve, but we've lost contact with that. And the world is noisy and there's stuff going on and we're all wearing headphones. I mean, there is a, there's, a, there's a million different reasons why we've, we're losing our listening. But I think never has it been more important that we get it back. And, and actually, underpinning my book, 
is this circular relationship. It's the thesis that we have a circular relationship between speaking and listening. In order to be a good talker, you need to be a good listener. You need to understand the listening you're talking into. You need to be adjusting your speaking, what you say and how you say it, so that you're hitting the bullseye and you're listening to the other person and understanding what it is they need, what turns them on, what what they're not interested in, what are their triggers and and so forth. So if you're sensitive in that way, you can be a very, very powerful speaker. If you don't listen, much harder. And by the same token, you know, if you can't speak well, then people won't listen to you. And so the circle continues. So that that's really behind the book. And I think a lot of the seven deadly sins arise from this paucity of listening, this poverty that we have, this lack of focus. Let's go through them. You've asked me, Tammy, so we we can let's have a chat about them. Yes. Number one, then, gossip. Now, that is incredibly prevalent in modern society. I once did an exercise where I gave up gossip for a period of time, and I realized shortly after starting what that really meant. I couldn't read magazines. I couldn't even read most newspapers. I couldn't watch a lot of TV, couldn't listen to a lot of radio. And I had to walk away from a lot of conversations with my friends by, you know, and say, I'm really sorry, <laughs> but I don't do this any at the moment. I'm not doing this. Gossip being defined as just speaking ill of somebody who's not there. And we do so much of that in our lives, you know. It's just a, a, the odd catty comment or running somebody down. And again, if you look at it, where does that come from? Being right. It's, right. it, sure. it's malicious. It makes you feel good because you're not that person. But the trouble is, if you... Gossip is quite, it's quite um, addictive and it's quite seductive to listen to, but you know perfectly well that when you walk away, who are they going to be gossiping about? It's you. There's a thinness to it. There's a, there's a lack of authenticity, especially since a lot of gossip is made up and not even true. It's a very weak way of speaking, initially seductive, but actually doesn't get you anywhere in the long run. And by the way, as I said in the book, and I think I said it in the TED talk as well about the seven deadly sins, I'm not saying never do these things. You know, life is hard enough. (laughs) But I am saying if if these things become dominant, if they become very common in your speaking, it makes you harder to listen to. It makes you less powerful in your speaking. So it's, it's worth having a little alarm bell about all seven of them and just checking in from time to time and saying, am I doing a lot of that? Because it won't help you. Yeah, don't you find that that's a little bit of a credibility challenge? I mean, when you, we, we, so we all build these sort of impressions on each other. And I, I love how you tee up these seven deadly sins. But just to that very point, you hit a key word for us, which is that authenticity. And I, I just, it amazes me how we sort of gravitate towards what's comfortable for us, but also recognize that we can fall into the trap of mimicking another person for the sake of being in the conversation and how that plays into this as well. What, how do you see that sort of negativity and that draw to mimic match up in how we listen? Yeah, well, the, there's this dynamic going all, all the time. So the seven deadly sins apply uh, just as much really to listening as they do to speaking. And I think in the book, I really, I, I position them as deadly sins of communication. Certainly, that's the way I think of them now. And behind them in the book, I talk about four leeches, which I didn't have time to talk about in the TED Talk. The four leeches being people-pleasing, fixing, being right and looking good. So we've already talked about two of them. And the one you just talked about, mimicking people and, and being a chameleon and wanting to fit in, that's, that comes from the people-pleasing leech. They all come from the same place, which is fear. So let's be clear. We're talking about fear here. 
fear of not being liked, fear of not fitting in, fear of not being able to achieve what you want to achieve. It, it, fear is at the root of all of these things. It expresses itself in the four leeches and they drive these seven deadly sins of speaking, I think. For anybody listening to this, the first and most important thing to understand is that the key to unlock all of this is consciousness. The moment you start to shine the light of consciousness on these things, you first of all become aware of them when you weren't, and secondly, you have the opportunity to start changing them because you can start to see how they may be playing out in your life. And a lot of the exercises in my book are about writing and understanding how these things actually work in your life and, and the effect they're having. Because these, these can be, you know, they're, they're kind of often deeply rooted and they can have been working away for years and years without you even being conscious of them and compromising your outcomes, your, your well-being, your effectiveness, your happiness in life. So the second deadly sin, condemning. Now, I think in the TED Talk I called it judging. Judging. Yeah, but really I want to go one stronger because a lot of people got confused there. They said, surely we need to judge if something's good or bad and we need to have discernment in life. And yes, absolutely, we need to be discerning in life. I'm talking about the kind of parent who, when the child comes back and says, I got 95 out of 100 in the test, says, what happened to the other five? You know, mm, the, yeah. the, the kind of always, always going at the negative, being being very, very judgmental of everybody around being reluctant to say a good thing or give any praise i think i quoted in the book that wonderful character in the film whiplash who who said something along the lines of good job are the two most dangerous words in the english language or something along those you know, just would not give praise to people because he thought it was weak and so forth so it's it's that kind of condemning and i think we've all been around somebody who's who's like that and they are tiring to be around and annoying as well. And often that stuff is aimed at us and it's not pleasant. Number three. Before you go to number three, I have a question yeah. about this one. Because this one I always find to be really interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm always fascinated by why we do these things. And I think some of them, and, and, and you brought up a good point, is this idea of fear. But some of them are you know, protective mechanisms or it's learned behavior that, you know, if you grew up with a parent who was constantly, as you put it, condemning you, there is a potential that you will do the same to others because that's a behavior that you know. But do you think that it's serving another purpose? So if I feel the need to constantly criticize or to, I mean, a bunch of these kind of go together, you know, gossiping, this idea that I have to talk about my coworker or my neighbor or a friend to other people. Why are we doing this? What is it? It obviously adversely affects our ability to communicate effectively, but what need are we filling when we do that, do you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, again, I think it's being right. It's that that's a really, really, really powerful drive. And there's a great, great quote from Harville Hendricks, who created the Imago technique, which I think is that, you know, for anybody listening to this, if you want to do work on relationships, a wonderful piece of work. And he basically said, you can either be right or be married. That was <laughs> it. Uh, yes, I've heard that one. I'm yeah. familiar. Yes. Okay. And 
You said you can't you can't curl up in the evening with being right. <laughs> Good uh, point. <laughs> so it is very dangerous to be addicted to being right. It's, I mean, it, it also means you don't learn very much, of course, because uh, you know if you're right all the time, if you have to be right all the time, right? Uh, that's not the way we get to synthesis. So going back to politics. You know, it's really important we don't have that. Otherwise, we just have these two people shouting at each other from either side of a, the other end of the political spectrum and nothing in the middle where compromise can happen. Right. And, you know, as you know, in the UK at the moment, we have a terrible mess with a bunch of incredibly self-righteous people resigning from government left, right and centre because it's not exactly what they want. Well, I don't know where you go with that because the doctrine of ministerial responsibility we used to have which was we had a government, which was a cabinet, and they all agreed to agree in public, even if they disagreed in private. Oh, That's gone. That's totally gone. Yeah. So now Same. if you disagree with the, the corporate view, you resign, which is ridiculous because uh, you'll end up with you know, a bunch of yes people who aren't even entertaining any other points of view at all. No internal debate, no synthesis coming out of thesis and antithesis. There's, there's none of that going on. There's just a kind of elimination of disputing points of view and you end up with complete homogeneity, which isn't a very good way to govern a country, I don't think. Sure, yeah. Okay, so number three, which made me laugh in your TED Talk because you talked about your mom with this one. Yeah, well, that was a true, true story. Negativity. So it is, it's, it's dispiriting and draining to be around somebody who is continually negative. You know, you say, oh, yeah, the sun's going to come out uh, tomorrow morning. And they say, well, it'll be raining later. You know, it, it's just this kind of constant, <laughs> constant, constant, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but kind of thing. My mother definitely had that in the end of her life, the, the latter part of her life. Her, her worldview essentially was everything's awful. That was the basic view. So I took the newspaper into her in hospital after she'd hurt her wrist. And I said, oh, look, it's October the 1st today. And she said, I know, isn't it dreadful? And you just think, well, if the date what is dreadful, what day. hope is there? Yeah, I mean. Where do we go from been, here? Same, for, same would have been true for October the 2nd, you know. So that, that is, that's the depressing thing. And it, it, you have to do time around those people in small chunks, really. Otherwise, you get dragged down yourself. So you have to go away and recharge and come back and be positive and do your best and so forth. But if somebody is being like that, now those are extreme examples, but you know, if, if you have a tendency to be negative, then you are harder to listen to and harder to be around. And I think it's very important that we check in on these things and just ask ourselves the questions, you know, how positive am I? How many times do I use the word not when I'm talking? Our language is incredibly important. And there are people who get a little bit addicted to the word not, and everything is couched in a kind of negative rather than a positive phrase. So, yeah, negativity. Watch out for the word not. Number four, complaining, which I think I joked in the TED Talk is the British national pastime, which is <laughs> yes. pretty much true, really. You invented it, we, yes. I, yeah, I probably. <laughs> well, like most good things in the world, you know. <laughs> Listen, look, we're all from somewhere else, so we, we'll, we'll give you credit and gladly own it. <laughs> yes, I, I'm afraid we probably did invent this one. Complaining, I'm not talking here, just to be clear, I'm not talking about complaining where you can improve things so if the waiter brings you food for your next meal out and the food is not right complain absolutely um, there is a, a sort of 
alternative British, which is to complain privately and then pretend everything's fine, which we, we do a lot. Don't make a fuss. You know, is this piece of burnt steak okay? Yeah, oh, it's lovely. Yes, thanks very much. And then the waiter goes away and they go, it's terrible, isn't it? So right. British people tend to do that a fair bit, and that's pointless. What I'm talking about here is this kind of pointless complaining, typically about things you cannot affect, like the weather or sport results or, well, politics. We get a chance every few years to affect that, but complaining about it in the interim, I call it viral misery. It is not spreading sunshine and the joy of being alive to other people. It's focusing people on things that may hurt a bit. But if you can't change them, there's only one thing, one thing to do, and that's be an acceptance. And just say, that's, this is how it is. We start from where we are. This is the world today. Now let's move on and see what we can do. And I, again, I think you know, the world is full of stories of amazing human beings who've changed the world and set out it, it's being just them at the beginning, and they've been unwilling to stand up for, uh, to, to, to um, sit down and accept things. I think that's wonderful, and I'm not saying don't complain. If you can do something, if you can you know, inspire people, create a movement, make change, go do it, fantastic. Uh, what I am doing is saying, if complaining becomes a habit and it's empty complaining, and it's just more you know, negative views about things that you have no intention of affecting, sure. then that's the viral misery and that's the thing to watch out for. The antidote, of course, to complaining is what people call an attitude of gratitude, yes. which is to focus on the half full. It's to be with what you have got, not what you haven't got. Uh, and that, I think, is an incredibly important part of life, really. I want to jump in on that because I think there's an interesting point about what you're saying. You've mentioned it a few times when we think about complaining. It's about the fact that there's no destination when, when there's just that complaint. It takes you to a dead-end road, essentially, and sort of dumps you off there in the middle of this highway with no direction to go. There's, there's no intent at reparation or solution. And I really think that that impacts how people then begin to to your very point, categorize or perceive you as somebody who is either trying to be right, somebody who is afraid, or somebody who is trying to prove something. I have something that can't be solved or isn't going to be resolved, but I'm going to spread it around and sort of show my, show my knowledge of something that is not going to happen. But I think that's not how people perceive that, and it actually makes them bad, not want to listen. Definitely. I, complaining, very often people who are inveterate complainers, they're like sitting in a pit, dragging other people in. That's the process. You want other people to join you in your misery, which kind of validates you in some way, shape or form. Again, it probably at the root is about being right. Nevertheless, uh, it's no fun if you don't get everybody else agreeing with you. you know, if somebody disagrees with your complaint, then that's, that's a very big invalidation and right. difficult for you to take. So yes, I absolutely agree with you. I think that's very much how the process works. So where have we got to? Number five, excuses. Excuses, yes. It wasn't my fault. I love that scene in the Blues Brothers where John Belushi is explaining why he didn't turn up to his wedding with Carrie Fisher. <laughs> if anybody hasn't seen that, it's really good. He ends up with the, I think locusts is the last excuse. <laughs> So, <laughs> yes, we all, we all tend to do this. We all tend to shove the blame off. Some people I call blame throwers, they absolutely just pass it around to anybody else. Now, that's 
a bit of a problem in life because if it's never your fault, you never change. You don't improve, you don't learn, you don't take experiences on the chin. And there's a dishonesty to it. Now, we've, you know, I'm not saying we should never do this, but again, if it becomes a habit to sidestep responsibility, I think that's missing a trick. My objective, I don't know about anybody listening to this, but I mean, I've got one objective every day when I wake up, which is to grow just a little bit. And if you're set to do that kind of thing, then excuses are the enemy because it's really important to be able to say, I'm sorry, and this is what happened, and this is what I'm going to put in place to make sure that ne it never happens again. Now, it does require somebody else being willing to accept your apology and forgive. So the, the mirror to apology is forgiveness. And it's, again, it's, it's hard to be around people who are unforgiving in that way because it, it can reduce your motivation to apologize. But it is a much more productive way to go just for yourself than making excuses and saying, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. So what can I do? So I'm just going to go on and do the same thing again next time because it wasn't my fault. There's no growth in that. Agreed. The last two, I think, resonate so much with what we're dealing with, certainly in the U.S., in terms of our government mm. and our president. And again, I try to avoid having political conversations because they're never good. But mm. I, I'm intrigued by your thoughts around this because I think there's no better, in my opinion, no better example of why we are where we are as a country in the U.S. than the last two things that you're about to talk about. Yes, number six, exaggeration, which sounds like a harmless pursuit, really. Hyperbole is from the Greek. It means to throw beyond. And there's a couple of things in here which I think are regrettable, personally. One of them is what you could call language inflation, which is the need to make words bigger and bigger and bigger. So, you know, once upon a time, it used to be okay to be excited about something. <laughs> now you've got to be super excited about something. <laughs> and, you know, doubtless in a few years, it'll be that you've got to be super, super excited about super something. You know, where do we go with this? <laughs> yeah, it goes on and on and on. Or as I joked in the TED talk, and I, you know, I will always say that, and I'll say that to you too, you're Americans, you know, if, if a pizza is awesome, what's a sunset? You know, we have, we have lost that word. And it's very unfortunate because awesome was a great word. Yes. And now it's been degraded to the point where it just means nice or impressive or, you know, tasty or whatever it might mean in the circumstances. So I think language inflation is a shame. It makes us less sensitive and it removes words which once had strong meanings and we've done that all the way through history. I mean, I'm, <laughs> you can't stand in the way of language. Language is an evolving thing, and it's a very, very short-lived ambition to be King Canute with language and say, this is outrageous. You know, for example, a thing that winds me up enormously is when I read people writing must of or should of. Because of the elision in language, we say should have or must have. So it's apostrophe V-E, the have has been elided. And people hear it as of. And oh. I see people writing that. Oh, my goodness. It drives me nuts. Now, <laughs> that's me. But I have no doubt that if you come back in 50 years, it'll probably be accepted English. 
because ah. so many people are doing it and we've got so oral and, and, you know, we don't write in the way we used to write, you know, texting is, is not grammatical. Now there's a, there's a great Ted talk. Who was it by? I can't remember now about the difference between writing, writing and writing, speaking and speaking, writing and speaking, speaking. And it's a very interesting quadrant. If you divide those mm. things up and text is effectively writing, speaking, Right. Whereas yeah. reading from a, a prepared manuscript, of course, is speaking writing, and it doesn't work very well to do it that way either. So we really want to be in speaking, speaking, and writing, writing to a good degree. Nevertheless, I'm sorry, I'm having a rant about language. I, what no, no, I'm no, saying no. We is, could have, what, we could have this is so up Tammy We could have a whole <laughs> separate conversation about this because these are the things that keep me up at night. And I have two, I know you have at least one child, I have two teenage boys. Yeah. And I, obviously we text and I want to kill them when I <laughs> receive their, not literally, but when I receive their texts, I, I, I constantly find myself correcting their grammar and correcting their use of the English language. And I often will get a response saying, it's a text. Mm. And then I respond to them saying, it doesn't matter. Uh, well, you need to watch that TED talk, Tammy. It will it will chill your bones about these things because texting texting is not writing. They are unfortunately. I have to side with your sons on this. Texting is texting. It's verbal and diarrhea. The rules, yeah, the rules of, the rules of grammar don't apply. So, I mean, there is there is a, a huge amount of evidence to show that people uh, of perhaps um, our generations do tend to text in precise English. But that is not true of teenagers, and then nor should it be, because it's a different way of communicating. It's yes. kind of like a patois or something. Yes. Anyway, going back to where we were, language inflation, I think, is regrettable simply because it takes good words away. And although it's been going on for you know as long as languages existed, there's a limit to how many times we can think of new words to take the place of the ones we've we've taken away. You know, fantastic. Once upon a time, used to mean something that was out of fantasy, not just great. And now it just means great. So does amazing. You don't mean you're literally amazed, you just mean it's great. So there's a lot of words for great, which have been kind of dragged down to that level. And we've lost some of the, the nuancing that we had, some of the, the, the precise precision of description that we used to have. So, and incidentally, it is also true to say, I think that the research tends to indicate that vocabulary is shrinking. So younger people tend to use a smaller pool of words more often. I would say probably the word like would be really near the top of that pool. So that is a concern because I think if you don't have the vocabulary, it's harder to be articulate and that is frustrating and it can lead to all sorts of consequences. I mean, right up to violence. If you can't express yourself properly, it's really frustrating sometimes and maybe you don't get understood and conflict ensues and, you don't get what you want. You can't make a difference in the world. I mean, there's all sorts of consequences of not being able to express effectively. Before you move away from this, I think that you make a really interesting point in that, I mean, Donald Trump is a great example of this, that he doesn't, he has a very limited vocabulary. He tends to use sim simple language, which appeals to a lot of people. It was one of the things that people appreciated because versus Barack Obama, who had a very expansive vocabulary, was very articulate 
and quite frankly, was too sophisticated and intelligent for a big portion of our population. He was speaking and at a level that just didn't match the country. But what I find really interesting with Donald Trump is he does have a limited use of vocabulary. And what ends up happening is he tends to exaggerate. So he adds a lot of greatest, best, awesome. You know, he uses those words to compensate for the fact that he doesn't have other words to replace it. And obviously for other reasons, because he believes that everything is the greatest, the best or whatever. But it is interesting how those two things go hand in hand, a limited vocabulary and a need to exaggerate, to overemphasize uh, yeah. the word or to not be able to find other words to use. Yeah, definitely. I have an exercise in the book around this. It's actually in the, it's an exercise to say precisely what you mean. It's very difficult. I can tell you, I've done this myself and it's, it's not easy to become so conscious of the words you're using and to use exactly the words that express what you mean with no hyperbole, with no exaggeration, with no going beyond or throwing beyond in order to you know, impress people or, be bigger than you need to be. It's a tough exercise, but it's a very interesting one to use. Well, there you are. So I just said very interesting. Is that true? <laughs> uh, no, okay. I'll, I'll give myself, myself, I'll let myself off on that. I, yes. I think it is very interesting, actually. So it's, 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 it is very interesting to look at the, how difficult it is to get away from this tendency we all have to make things bigger. And, you know, exaggeration. I mean, I'm sure that neither of you have ever claimed to read a book you you didn't read, you know, but I have, <laughs> you know. Oh, no, Tolstoy? I have. Tolstoy? Tolstoy? Oh, yes, he's, he's awfully good, isn't he? No, you know. I, 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 was, I was an English major. Way back I in the day, of course. Did. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love Shakespeare. You know, I think I've actually read probably two Shakespeare plays, and uh, I've seen a couple in the theatre, but, you know, it's terribly easy to give the impression that, one has you know, a deep working knowledge of all 20 whatever <laughs> plays he wrote. So, yeah, I think, you know, it is a tendency we all have to exaggerate, to make ourselves look a bit better. It's not evil, but it is important to become conscious again that if we do it all the time, it tends to escalate and mild embroidery becomes lying and lies get bigger. And when you start lying, it becomes very difficult to stop. It can become, you know, a real prison, actually, I, I think it's very difficult when you go in that direction. So it's rigorous honesty is important to a point. You know, as, I, as I've said in other TED Talks, is, my God, you're looking ugly today. That's not necessary, really. Um, <laughs> we can be kind as well. So, you know, tempered by kindness, nevertheless, honesty is a very important thing. And you can be clever. I always love that example of an actor passionately telling another actor that his performance was it was unforgettable darling by which he means it was appalling but you know he's just being tactful it's honest there's lovely ways it's, to say it's, things it, it, <laughs> yes. it, is a, it is a word choice though that plays into how how it is perceived and i i, I want to talk a little bit about this exaggeration point because i actually think it feeds directly into your seventh deadly sin mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. in a very insidious way in that we just become so desensitized because words have not captured the right meaning for us. I miss the day when good was a compliment, when good was a satisfactory uh, word to describe something in a normal average day life. Good now is, oh my gosh, you're less than. You aren't even, you're not accelerating, you're not growing, you're not evolving. And my gosh, I'm a human. I apologize. I'm not going to evolve in every way you would like me to. So sometimes good's good enough. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I, I think that that constant 
that that trap, like lying. I think people become so accustomed to lying that I, I have to wonder their world must be so bad that they prefer to live in the imaginary world that the lie creates. But that naturally brings an exaggeration into it, which then, as it goes, at least in my mind, you have to have a strong opinion and be right and convince others that this is the reality because it's a false reality you've created for yourself. So I think exaggeration, how do you, how do you feel that feeds into that seventh deadly sin of the really the, just the dogma of it, the strong opinion, the point of view, this is factual. It's not an opinion. Yes. I think it's become quite difficult for people to tell the difference and it's a critical distinction I think, the difference between facts and opinions. There are facts in the world. You know, we're having a conversation. We're using an app called Zoom. I'm looking at a Macintosh. You know, these are facts. You can't dispute them as far as you can dispute anything, unless you can dispute every part of experience, which is where you go off into philosophy. That's a different conversation. Um, opinions are easy to confuse and, and uh, easy to... Uh, to get very wedded to um, and to become so attached that they kind of work as facts. I mean, I grew up in a house that was um, confused about the difference between facts and opinions. And it tends to lead to a lot of table thumping. It leads to a lot of raised voices. Uh, you know, a dogmatism, uh, the insistence that your your opinions are correct. Effectively. Why does this come out at Thanksgiving time, by the way? I was going to say, we're, uh, we're this is going to be my Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> <laughs> okay i don't know because i have never been to a thanksgiving dinner being british you can imagine you're lucky you can imagine uh, okay think dinner think any holiday yeah. dinner we are all about as a country we are all about to convene at large tables and this very sin dogmatism will be in full effect opinions all will be our, offered yes 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 fully <laughs> many opinions will be offered and you know, in 2016, after, you know, our very controversial presidential election, what you heard was people weren't going to family dinners, that the holidays were so adversely impacted because of this very point, that mm. you now had factions of families and friends and whomever might be sitting at this table saying, mm. no, these are facts. And someone else saying, no, 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 that's your opinion. That's mm. not a fact. And mm. this idea of fake news and all of these different things, and it's, it's created such a division. And Thanksgiving mm. seems to be, at least here in the States, because we do celebrate it, Thanksgiving is the embodiment of that. You, you, just like you talk about thumping your hands on the, your fists on the table, that mm. I envision two days from now an argument at my Thanksgiving table that is because <laughs> someone has an opinion that they have deemed to be a fact. So I think, well, I think a suggestion for you, a, a little please, suggestion. Yes, for please, you. please, save please, us. please, we need them. Yes. <laughs> you could, at the beginning of the event, gather everybody around and say, my intention here is to have a beautiful, harmonious and loving event. So my suggestion is that we leave our opinions by the door. And if we are going to offer an opinion, we ask permission first, or oh. at least we own that it's an opinion. Can we all please be very conscious about the difference because of this uh, you know, polarization in the country? We don't need this around our table. If you want to have an opinion, ask everybody if they'd like your opinion. And you I have love to be that. 
if you have to if you do that you have to be prepared for the answer no thank you very much which is always distressing damn i had such a good opinion all ready to go there (laughs) well i think that coupled with alcohol would probably yes that's fine a little liquor will go a long way (laughs) i would like the option of being the one to say i don't want your opinion (laughs) yes 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 so uh, alcohol unfortunately does tend to move the boundary between the facts and opinions significantly yes agreed but there we go it's it's a human thing and again the, the trick is to become conscious and ask oneself the question, you know, just checking in. Is that an opinion? Do I, can I really justify that as a fact? And is there an alternative opinion that I could learn from? You know, is there something else? Is there something here for me? It all comes back to listening, really, and listening, perhaps listening to grow. I talk in the book about listening for, you know, like a mining operation. You're listening for something. And I think listening for growth is a really interesting way to be, uh, especially around the table of family who are having a drink or two. Is there something I can learn here of how not to behave, for example? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're preaching to the choir here because Tim and I are are very strong believers in that and listening is a very important part of how we operate from a partnership and a a business perspective and, and certainly we try to bring it into our personal lives. We, we only have a little bit of time left, so I want to sh- switch gears for a second. I loved this discussion and appreciate you going deep into, into these seven deadly sins. I, as you were talking, I was thinking about my older son who's going off to college in the fall, and I thought I'm going to buy him your book for Christmas because I, think, I do think it's an important thing to really... I, I love how you've applied this not just as a business book. And one of the things that that you talked about is the idea of intimacy and how listening really creates intimacy. And, you know, you can look at intimacy as, you know, the relationship between two partners, two, two married partners, or you can look at intimacy as friends or between anybody that you care about. But this idea that in order to have intimacy, you need to have honesty, you need to be able to hear the other person and create that connection that the other person, and I'm a huge fan, I don't know if you're familiar with Esther Perel, who is a relationship guru, and she talks a lot about this, that this idea that we need to be validated by the other person, we need acknowledgement. I hear you. I hear mm. what you're saying. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, and then we'll we'll just very quickly touch on. Uh, and I'm going to encourage people to get your book to read more about conscious listening, which I think I know you talked about a little bit. I think that is everything because that idea of consciousness. But talk a little bit about this idea of intimacy and relationships and how the communication plays into that. Yes. Well, what's the most common complaint in a relationship? It's he or she never listens to me. I mean, that's, you, you've heard that so many times. And unfortunately, it's largely true. In the TED Talk on listening, I talk about listening positions. And there's a gender stereotype listening position I use there, which I think, you know, although it's politically incorrect to give gender stereotypes now, I think there's enough truth in it. And it's also slightly amusing that it's, it's valid. And in fact, people have come up to me after I've been giving talks on these kind of topics and said that that's transformed their, their life, that particular point. So let me, let me just talk about that for a moment. Um, listening positions in males and females tend to be slightly different. Men, not all men, not all the time, but men tend to listen in a way that I call reductive, which is for a point, for a solution, 
to solve a problem, to get somewhere, to go to a destination. There's got to be a, a focus here. You know, there's got to be a reason for this. And often it's a problem solving um, process. So that's, you know, a typical male conversation. I've got this problem. Oh, here's the solution. Oh, thanks. You know, and, you know, men are quite simple like that. That's the way it tends to roll. Women, on the other hand, not all women, not all the time, tend to listen in a way I call expansive. And in expansive listening, there is no point. It's not about a point. It's not about a solution. It's not about a problem to solve. It's not about a destination. It's about being with the other person and going where it goes and smelling the roses and enjoying the journey and just being there. And if those two things get set and if one is not conscious of them, then you'll get a lot of conversations like she comes home and says, oh, I've had this dreadful day. This happened, this happened, this happened. And he looks up from the football game and says, have a bath, baby. You always feel better after a bath. Now, in the male world, that's problem solved back to the football. In the female world, that was not what she was looking for. She was <laughs> hoping for something more along the lines of, oh, you poor thing, sit down, tell me all about it, let me get you a glass of wine. Now, that's, that's a very unmale thing to do. You know, you're opening a can of worms there. That's the opposite of what males tend to want. On the other hand, that's exactly what she would like, is empathy, understanding, and the ability to expand. So it's important that we realize we can get stuck in these listening positions. And that, I think, those listening positions account for a lot of the misunderstanding and the he or she never listens to me. It's how do you listen to the, the other person? And it can work equally well the other way. You know, if you want to get a man to take the trash out, you know, how on earth are we going to manage getting the trash out every Wednesday night? You know, and it's a problem. <laughs> and when you sit down and sort it, oh, right, I'm right on that one, you know. So it's a question of speaking into the right listening and being conscious of the listening one is in oneself in order to try and adjust it. So if she comes home and she's had that kind of day, gentlemen, why don't you try moving to expansive listening? Oh, sit down, tell me all about it. And it, it, it can be absolutely transformational. The moment you become conscious that you can get stuck in a listening position, and typically at work, we get stuck in critical listening, for example, which is evaluating and assessing and judging and looking for, you know, is that useful and so forth. Well, that's very good at work. It's not so great if we bring it home. And there are a lot of people who do that as well. So I think intimacy is very much helped by becoming conscious of our listening position. And you said, Tammy, I mean, validation is very important. I, I've heard it said that we require or we really need three things in relation to to be heard, to be understood, and to be valued. And validation is incredibly important. Even if you don't agree with somebody, you can validate them. You know, it, it makes sense to me that given you believe this, that you would feel upset about that, rather than, don't be upset, don't be ridiculous, why are you upset about that? You know, it's very easy to get sucked into our own listening position being right. Again, it's about being right and the other person being wrong. And then you're invalidating. And there's, uh, again, a lot of intimacy erosion is down to invalidation in relationships where you just unconsciously, don't, don't be stupid, don't cry, don't do that. You know, why are you doing that? You know, don't not touch. understanding that, <laughs> yeah, in that person's world, what they're doing is perfectly rational and perfectly congruent with their beliefs and their assumptions and you know all the stuff I talk about um, you know the listening filters that we have in, in the TED talk and in the book and they're very complex and they mean that everybody's listening is unique so if we can become conscious that the other person isn't listening like we do 
has a different reality in many ways, we can become curious about that reality. And that is one of the, the four C's of listening. That is the, probably the most important one. Uh, you know, you've got to be conscious. Uh, you've got to be compassionate. You've got to be curious. And what's the other one? I'm trying to remember now. I've just gone back <laughs> on the fourth C. But curious is the most important one of all of them. Because if you can get into being curious, really curious about the other person, that is enormously important. So committed. Yeah, of course, committed. You, you've actually got to make time to listen to somebody. I, I love all of that. And I love that you talk about the idea of listening as an act of love, that, you know, the ability to listen really requires a level of commitment. So we're, we're, we're just about out of time, but I want to, I want to just add this and, and give a couple of plugs here because I think that your book is extraordinary. And I, and I do want to emphasize the fact that even though it is technically a business book, everything that you're talking about and the way that you talk about it really applies to our lives. And, and this is a perfect example that we always talk about communication as a life skill. Many of us learn it at work. We apply it, mo we think, most frequently. A lot of the tactical skills we use in our professional lives because it's what we need to get ahead. It's what we need to get our message across. It's what we need to get our job done, whatever it might be. But the, the ability to communicate effectively makes us happier in our lives. Mm. It, it gives us so much more satisfaction. So I really do want to encourage everybody to check out your book, How to Be Heard. It for me, what it did is it, get, it, it reinforced all the things that I know to be true, obviously, because we, we focus on many of the same things. But it really allowed me to kind of step outside and say, what do I do in my life with my family, with my husband, with my friends? And, and how do I look at this? I think that even as someone, and I'm sure you have the same experience, that even as someone who is particularly engaged and relatively well-versed on the topic, we constantly learn. Oh, yeah ways to do things differently or something resonates with us differently five years uh, along the road than it did five years ago. So I think your book is wonderful and I, I, I highly you. encourage everybody to pick up a copy uh, Amazon or wherever you buy your books. We'll put a link on our website. You've got these great TED Talks and, I, and the synergy between the two. You can watch him. I will tell you that Julian is really fun to watch on a TED Talk. You made me laugh. I loved, I love the, the exercises. I love the exercises. <laughs> I love the, I love the fact that you dig into noise mm. and to help people understand, you know, the difference between the different sounds and how, you know, we talk a lot about this idea that, you know, if you're in a crowded space, how do you use your voice to make sure that it, that it's, it steps apart from the other background noise? And, you know, we talk about inflection and how you use that. And that's what gets people's attention. And you talk about the same thing. But I love the idea of focusing on those simple noises. And, and you use your dryer I think about in the springtime when there's people outside mowing lawns and the serenity Mm. of that very, very peaceful noise. So I yeah. encourage everybody to check out your TED Talks and your book. We were so thrilled to have you on the show today, Julie, and it's been a true pleasure and, and love the work that you're doing and look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thank you, Tammy. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, and Tim, before we you. let you go, I'd love to just hear real quickly, what's on the horizon for you? You, you mentioned you just won an amazing award. Congratulations on that. Where, where you. are your next steps? I think you're launching some workshops and have some initiatives going. Where, where do you take, take off from here? 
Yes, we've just got into doing kind of high level training and I've realized there's so much material. So what I've committed to do is to create some online trainings, which will be out early next year, hopefully, or certainly by the summer of next year on juliantreasure.com. There'll be trainings in public speaking, trainings in private speaking, trainings in listening, trainings in organizational listening, all sorts of topics which are, you know, really come out of the book and come out of the thinking in the last year or so. And I've realized that it'll be so good to put those out there so that they're fixed and people can do them at their own pace. And, and, you know, it spreads, it all spreads this incredibly important message that we need to be listening better. We need to be speaking better because a world without conscious listening and a world without powerful speaking is, is a dangerous world indeed. And I think we've seen a lot of the, the threat of that in the last few years. So Hopefully I can do my little bit to turn the tide back and, and get the world listening. And uh, that's the we objective anyway. We fully support that. We're so excited to hear and follow you, of course, and see how things will, will progress. We're going to be watching you. We're huge fans, obviously. Thank you, guys. I just want to take the minute just to thank you. Congratulations again on your award. And thank you. really appreciate your time in sharing your thoughts and insights with how we communicate, how we listen, and... Hopefully we can do this again in the future and catch up and see where things are at, uh, at down the road. I'd love to continue the conversation with you. I know Tammy and I both really enjoyed the opportunity to speak with you and, and listen. That's wonderful. Well, thank you. And I would look forward to that. So let's talk again. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. Thank, thank you guys. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of Figures of Speech. We're so grateful to our listeners for tuning in. Figures of Speech is brought to you by Presenter, an app that helps anyone practice and get real-time feedback on their communication skills to help them speak more confidently and passionately. In addition to this podcast, you can also find our content that's filled with tips, insights, and inspiration on ways you can share your ideas with passion and impact. We recognize that communication is happening all the time. It's not just in the workplace, it's at the dinner table, it's with your friends. Anytime you're speaking in public, you're public speaking. For the latest, visit presenter.me or follow us on Facebook and Twitter and download our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and we look forward to talking to you again soon.